This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. The United States Senate is in one of its not infrequent modes of self-immolation. It's looking to change its own rules on how it considers nominations underneath the uh, cabinet and Supreme Court level. There's a lot of hard feelings about this, and we want to know what is going to happen in this latest depression of the nuclear button uh, on the floor. Joining us on Political Theater uh, this week is James Walner. He's a senior fellow at the R Street Institute, and he's also a lecturer and fellow at American University. In a previous life, he was at the Heritage Foundation, and before that, he worked for Senators Patrick Toomey, Mike Lee, and Jeff Sessions. And also joining me is Niels Lesniewski, our senior Senate reporter here at CQ Roll Call. Uh, Between the two of them, uh, it's hard to find anything that you can't know about (laughs) Senate procedure. So, uh, James, Niels, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So let's just walk through a little bit of what we're seeing in the Senate right now. We've, we, we throw, we've thrown around in the last few years the nuclear option a couple of times in, in relation to how the Senate considers nominees. But what, where, where are we right now, uh, uh, James? We're, we're, we're about to see another rules change. And why, let's, before we get to the significance of it, let's just kind of recap where we're at. Well, where we are right now is that the Senate appears to be set to use this maneuver called the nuclear option to shorten uh, what they refer to as post-closure debate time. That's the time specified in the rules that a nominee can be debated by senators on the floor after they invoke closure to end debate. Right. So specifically, the rules state that after you cut off debate or revoke cloture, you have 30 hours that you debate these nominees uh, that the president sends up. What is happening right now? The, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and, and his leadership team, and uh, they, they want to cut the number of hours for particularly for district court judges and sub-cabinet uh, level um, of nominees. That is correct, but only in part. The rule states specifically that you have up to 30 hours. It's a ceiling. It's not a floor. Okay. Um, the senators have to use that time, and they have limits on how long they can speak during that time. And the, one of the reasons that this is, you know, has, has come to a head is that we've seen several different nuclear buttons de- detonated over the last few years. Uh, in 2013, uh, when the Democrats uh, were in the majority, Harry Reid, uh, he, he changed the rules using this maneuver, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, which, which cut the number of votes you needed to cut off debate to a simple majority rather than 60 uh, for, for district court nominees and circuit court nominees uh, to, to the federal bench. And then in 2017, Mitch McConnell, uh, when he was, uh, you know, the, when the Republicans were in the, in the majority, they still are in the majority, he uh, did, pulled the same thing with Supreme Court nominees so that we could get Neil Gorsuch uh, uh, to ascend to the Supreme Court. So this is just the, the latest in erosion of these sort of, of moments, correct? Yeah, that's correct. The Constitution's very specific. Article 1, Section 5 says that the Senate gets to determine or the Congress gets to determine the rules of its proceedings. A simple majority being sufficient to do so, that means that the Senate, a majority there, can decide what it wants to do when it wants to do it. 
The problem is that the rules they have specify, as you mentioned, these supermajority thresholds to end debate on nominees. And in 2013 and in 2017, and what looks like will happen today, uh, majorities have decided not to comply with those rules, to ignore them or to violate them. And they have the authority to do so. But what's important is that those rules continue to say that it takes a simple majority, I mean, a supermajority, to end debate on these nominees. Right. So if you want to change the rules in the Senate, Niels, it's it's 67 uh, votes, as, as James just said, uh, for nominees, it used to be 60. Now it's going down to 51. And for to change this rule, to, to set a new precedent in, in what James is discussing in, in, in changing the amount of time for debate. Right. So it's the limitation on the debate uh, for rules changes actually needs two thirds of, of senators. If you had a filibuster of a rules change and it, it still says that it's uh, 60 votes, effectively three fifths of senators duly chosen and sworn. Uh, that are required for that would be required uh, to limit debate on the nominations. If you read the rules, that's still what it would tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these standing orders and these changes in precedent uh, that have been implemented have sort of been an end run around the formal process of actually changing and amending the standing rules of the Senate. Uh, and and what I think is particularly notable about this particular instance is that the uh, majority leader, Senator McConnell, is trying to divide off sub-cabinet nominations, uh, an assistant secretary of commerce to be specific, and a district judge down in South Florida uh, in an effort to avoid having the uh, 30 hours, up to 30 hours of debate cut down to two hours for the rest of the nominees. One thing I don't know yet is what will happen down the road when a uh, parliamentarian is asked for an advisory opinion on whether or not someone who is for a different cabinet uh, agency, someone who is for, say, the Federal Trade Commission or the FCC, uh, is sub- whether or not they're subject to this procedure as well. There's going to have to be more of these back and forths with the presiding officer representing the views of the parliamentarian. It seems it seems invariable that we're going to just having to keep doing this now uh, that this particular genie is out of the bottle. So, so James, one of the questions I have is that, I mean, we're we're into this stuff, right? I mean, like, we, you know, you're you're a scholar, you're a former staffer. Uh, Niels, you've been covering the Senate, you know, for you know the better part of the last decade and a half, uh, in in various uh, iterations of roll call or CQ or gallery watch. Uh, I, I, as I, as I recall, I'm a political science major and the leadership editor and the host of the of a po- politics podcast. We're into this, right? Uh, what does it mean for other people? Though, why should people care about this? I mean, th- this is this is the United States Senate, and it is it is part of the people's government. But it's it's remarkable how little effect it seems to have on 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 people as as we talk about rules and so forth. But why should they be concerned about this? I, I think that's a good point. The quickest way to win friends, right, and influence people is probably not to start talking about the Senate rules <laughs> when you walk into the uh, when you walk into a, a crowded room. You want to wait until you're on a long distance uh, airplane flight, right, across an ocean, where right. you've got somebody captive next to you, and you can then launch and they want to fall asleep, right? And you then just, you can yeah, win. Then them you over. can talk. Right? No. The purpose of Congress in our political system, the fundamental purpose is to adjudicate the concerns of citizens. That's what it's there for. And to make collective decisions on behalf of those citizens to govern the country. 
The administration then can administer those decisions. The Supreme Court and the other courts can then adjudicate disputes arising out of those decisions. But at the end of the day, that's what Congress does. You need rules to do that. Rules help give the members expectations about what to do in the future. They help regulate the process whereby senators and House members um, adjudicate the concerns of their representatives, I mean, of their constituents. And I think what you're seeing now with this repeated use of the nuclear option, by taking debate on a uh, post-closure debate on a nominee from up to 30 hours to two, potentially even less, is that there's no desire to adjudicate these concerns, to debate these issues, to allow senators to offer amendments. And as the rules are eroded and the expectation is I'm in the majority and this is what I want and I'm going to get it right now, that means that Congress can't perform that role. And that fundamentally alters the nature of the American regime. So, Niels, on, on Tuesday, what the first vote of, of, of this sort of procedure was uh, it was it was whether to cut off debate uh, on on the motion to proceed to this rules change, uh, that that did not uh, get to sixty votes. Mike Lee, uh, one of James' former um, you know em, em, employers in the United States Senate, was the only Republican to cross the aisle and and to vote against this, to vote not to cut off debate on this. Uh, what what do we know about that decision and why this has become such a uh, let, let's talk a little bit about Mike Lee and also just like is this just what we're going to see more of is this this sort of like just a straight party line vote on these things? Sure, I'll I'll, I'll let James speak specifically to to Senator Lee, uh, but more generally, it is sort of remarkable that we have gotten to the point where it is an almost party line a vote because there was a time where. Uh, this there were sort of factions on each side of the fence who believed in the the filibuster thresholds and the time for debate and those who didn't. Uh, so you would have situations where there would be Republicans who would be in agreement with Democrats and and, and vice versa, and you might have expected in a sort of bipartisan. Uh, fashion, as was the case with the standing order back in 2013, uh, that you would be able to come to some kind of consensus if things were not working. Now there's a fundamental disagreement, and and frankly, I think some of it is probably because of President Trump uh, particularly, and we're dealing with the executive calendar, but it seems like the, the time has shifted so much that people are so entrenched in their particular uh, partisan uh, camps that there's no uh, sense that this is going to change anytime soon. I think that's right. And I'm going to put a slightly different spin on it. If you think about the rules and what they do, and I think Mike Lee's an institutionalist, but that's, that's, I don't think that's the insight that t- explains why he voted no, mm-hmm. at least. And I haven't spoken to him about this. I don't know his inside thinking here. And if the situations were reversed, I would expect most Democrats to vote yes as well. So why aren't they opposing these changes to the rules that, which weaken their individual authority? Mm-hmm. You can think back to Howard Metzenbaum, a, a liberal Democrat, you can, and Jesse Helms, a conservative Republican. They would have opposed stuff like this. Why? Because they saw the Senate as the place where they went to adjudicate the concerns of their constituents and their own concerns mm-hmm. to help shape what the government does. And if you limit their influence and their power and their authority in that place, then you're undermining their ability to do that. 
And so I think what this shows us is that the vast majority of senators on both sides of the aisle have no interest whatsoever in actually going out and acting on a daily basis to achieve their stated goals in the Senate. They think the way to win in politics is to win the presidency. It's to win the Supreme Court. It's to be able to control outcomes in those places. And the Senate is almost like an afterthought. So of course they don't really care about the rules. Of course they're willing to cede their power to their leaders because that's not the important thing anymore. But in that context, it makes sense because Mike Lee is someone who still thinks of himself as a senator first and a Republican second, a senator first who represents people and that he has to do a job. And that's what he's there for. And he believes deeply in that mission. And I think that that can be a view that you see on the left and the right. It's not unique to either one, but very few people have that view anymore. One of the uh, um, there's a blog legislativeprocedure.com which you're one of the editors for um, and and I for for anybody who is interested in procedure uh, I would I would recommend highly uh, the, the your your blog. Um, one of the the things that you mentioned about this this rule is it really does um, the rule changes that it really puts a lot more power in the hands of the majority and minority leaders in the Senate and and takes away the ability of individual senators to basically speak for themselves and for their constituents. And Niels, you're you're mentioning, you know, in, in previous iterations, you had people on different sides of the aisle. And I was thinking immediately of, of the gang of 14 uh, in the early 2000s, where, you know, they're, they're, the at that point, um, uh, Bill Frist, a Republican from Tennessee, was the majority leader. He was considering uh, nuking the filibuster on on judges, uh, something that didn't happen until 2013. And this band of seven Republicans and seven Democrats got together, calling themselves the Gang of 14, and it had people like Susan Collins and Lindsey Graham, people who are still in the institution, uh, as well as people like John McCain and uh, and and uh, Mark Pryor, uh, that that they they said we will vote against any in block any attempt to change the rules if we consider that this is something kind of out of bounds. And I can't imagine a group like that existing anymore. I mean, except outside of like, say, somebody like Mike Lee and possibly Joe Manchin. I mean, it just seems almost unthinkable. Is that, what, is, what does that say about our institution here that we're, that we're talking about here? Yeah, I doubt that we will see another, another uh, gang of 14 uh, anytime soon. And I think that we are getting closer and closer to having to have the conversation about what happens when the future Democratic president and the future Democratic majority leader, because I think that is the pairing that would be most likely to to go down the road of nuking the legislative filibuster at this current uh, juncture. Uh, And I think we need to have the conversation now as to would there be any chance that there would be Democrats who would go against Chuck Schumer or his Democratic successor in an effort to invoke the nuclear option to, say, get rid of filibusters of appropriation bills, which is, I believe, the first incremental step that we would likely see on the legislative front? Right. I think that's right. And But one thing we often overlook in the 2005 example is that There had to be a space created for the Gang of 14 to form. And that space was created by Frist trying to go nuclear. And it looked like he had the votes for a while. But then the Democrats come in and they threaten massive retaliation. And that spooks some of the rank and file Republicans who may otherwise go nuclear. So then they get together and they negotiate and they have a compromise. Compromise has to arise out of that kind of process. What's remarkable about 2013 
2017 and then now is that no one threatens any kind of retaliation. And if they do threaten to retaliate, it's like, well, if you do this, then I'm going to go even further the next time, which which ironically reinforces right. the kind of behavior that you're trying to dissuade people from from taking. And I do want to one very small technical point, and I, and I think Niels is correct. And I, I think of it in terms of the judicial filibuster and the legislative filibuster. But it's important to keep in mind that Rule 22 makes no distinction. This is the cloture. This right. This, this is the out all the cloture. Rule procedures. 22 makes no. There is no such thing in in the rules. But I think I agree with Niels on this. But in the rules, a legislative filibuster and a, and a judicial filibuster is the same thing. It's just a filibuster. It's just a filibuster. And the majority. I mean, the majority's already decided to nuke a filibuster. And so now the question is, when will they stop? And I think Niels is correct. It's it, every time you do it, it becomes that much harder to convince your base, your members who believe strongly in things, that you can't do it. And so then we're going to keep going one after another after another. This happened in 1975, incidentally. They nuked a, a motion to proceed to a resolution to change the rules. Which you wrote about on legislativeprocedure.com. Yes. A riveting piece, I would imagine. <laughs> um, and if, uh, James Allen, a Democrat from Alabama, he tied the Senate up in procedural knots in, uh, for, for weeks. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, there was a compromise. And the people proposing a rules change didn't get everything they want. And Allen didn't get everything they wanted. They reversed the precedent. And then on they went. And that's when we have the we lowered the threshold to invoke closure to three fifths of senators duly chosen and sworn instead of two thirds present and voting. Uh, and I think that's an important concept. But today, no one, it seems, can be bothered to care about the rules. Well, and this brings up the point I have, which is that the or that I was wondering about, not that I have, is, is that, you know, the Senate does operate on unanimous consent. And so you really can. It doesn't take really much effort at all to totally screw things up and throw sand in the in the gears. So why why is there this hesitation on it? Well, part of what I think is fascinating in the current moment is with all of the Democrats running for president and the seemingly ever increasing number of Senate Democrats running for president. It is interesting and maybe instructive that none of them decide to object to unanimous consent requests on block, that none of them would rather go through the effort of spending days and days and days in Washington objecting to Mitch McConnell rather than being in Iowa and New Hampshire. They've made the calculation that uh, it is better to be on the campaign trail and to be able to continue to leave Washington at 1.45 p.m. on Thursday than... Uh, to run the risk of McConnell calling a bluff on an objection and forcing them to stay and continuously object. This is an extremely important point. There are no vetoes in the Senate. No senator can obstruct something without speaking. Mm -hmm. And the rules that we have now limit how long they can speak. So it seems to me there's no problem. Right. If you don't want Democrats to object, then stop asking for their permission. If you ask for their permission, they have every right to say no. Otherwise, you're not asking for a request. Right. It's so odd to me that the Republicans are about to use the nuclear option again to to speed up confirmation of an assistant secretary of commerce that no one seems to be obstructing. It's, it, it doesn't make any sense. The only thing is that I think Niels is correct, that, that it's not just presidential candidates. All senators, it seems to me, can't be bothered to be here past uh, two o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday in the, over the weekend. When I was in the Senate, Harry Reid went nuclear. The members I worked for wanted to, to threaten retaliation. And we went all night long. We started objecting to setting votes by consent, the same thing that Democrats are doing now. And you know what happened? Harry Reid forced us to stay in the Senate and speak 
all night long <laughs> for several days. It was exhausting. They didn't like doing it, and they knew that they were going to lose in the end, so it was a hard thing to keep up. And whatever assistant deputy under third secretary it was it made it even worse. And so the idea that there's a problem here, it seems very odd to me. But I think Niels is absolutely correct. At the end of the day, the senators want to win with no effort whatsoever. So to end on a like a, a somewhat upbeat note, I mean, the, not not an upbeat note, but just a bit of speculation. Um, the Senate goes through seasons and patterns, just like all political institutions. What do you think it would take, James, to get the Senate back to a point where people actually trust one another and want to work together? Ironically, I think it's going to take more conflict. You had a Senate in the 1950s that operated one way, and you had a lot of senators come in, the class of 1958, for instance, and they upended everything because it didn't serve their purposes. And out of that, you got a, a lot of chaos, a lot of filibusters, a lot of the things that we complain about now. You also got the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You also got the Voting Rights Act. You've got the Clean Water, Clean Air Act. You've got all these other departments. You have one of the most explosive periods of legislating in American history. But they had to change how the Senate operated. And the way to change how the Senate operates is to get out and try to win to offer amendments, to object to things, to out-hustle your opponents. And whether you're on the right or the left, that process yields big legislative things. And all it takes in this beautiful institution that we have is for senators to actually try. That's all, nothing else. Well, uh, we're gonna leave it at that. James, thank you so much for, for walking us through this. Niels also, and thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com, or you can find us on Twitter at RollCall. And please check out LegislativeProcedure.com. And once again, thank you for listening.